Uh, good afternoon. My name is Eugene. I'm one of the pastors here and I uh, want to welcome you to Cornerstone Church, especially if this is your first time with us. Uh, we're glad that you've chosen to uh, worship with us on this day and uh, look forward to uh, just uh, asking God to uh, be here in our presence and to bless uh, our time of worship together. So it is now September and uh, I see that many of you are back from summer breaks and internships and other business that has taken you away for the summer. Uh, Today, we actually begin a new journey, a new series uh, in the book of the Psalms. The book of the Psalms is a collection of songs, poems, and hymns that are really smack dab in the middle of the Bible. If you've never read the Bible before, if you're unfamiliar, chances are if you open it up somewhere near the middle, you'll hit the Psalms. And there are two things I want to really point out about the Psalms. First is this. In the Psalms, what you find are real people with real emotions, okay? I'm not talking about those Ned Flander type Christians who are always happy, always go lucky, but I'm talking about people who wrestle with reality and are expressing their frustration, their pain, their misery, their disappointment, their heartbrokenness. You'll find real people expressing real emotions if you read through the Psalms. It's almost offensive. It's kind of like, how dare you speak to God in that way? But that's what you find. The second thing you find in the Psalms is that it's the only portion of the Bible that it's people talking to God or at God or toward God instead of God speaking to his people. Everywhere else, whether it's through history or prophecy or parables and teachings, It's God who speaks to his people. But in the Psalms, you find a collection of writings and poems and songs and prayers where God's people are speaking to God. I'm not saying it's not inspired of God because it is, but that's what's so unique and special about the Psalms. In other words, you might have heard this before, but the Psalms are our prayers. And if you scan them and you read them and you study them, chances are you will find, you can find a psalm that will fit you in your current season of life that will be a very good articulation of where you are and and how you're expressing that to God. And oftentimes, we we sort of shortchange ourselves because we aren't very patient with the psalms. We kind of read them as sort of a, a, a quick 30-second devotional or, you know, when we're, you know, we've always been told, you know, when you're having a hard time praying, just read a psalm as your prayer. But the truth is they're difficult because most of it is poetry. And how many of you are poets? I mean, how many of you speak in poetry, right? I mean, it's, it's sort of a, a very, it's kind of like a, a, an underappreciated genre of literature for most of us. And yet that is what the psalms are. And not only are they poems and songs, but they weren't written in English. And so I know they don't rhyme, but that's not the original language, okay? I know meter is sort of, has a weird cadence about it, but in the Hebrew, there's a very regular meter. Uh, There's a rhyme, there's a lot of alliteration in the psalms that you won't pick up because in the English language, it just doesn't translate that way. And so for the next nine weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to look at nine different psalms. And I hope the psalms that we look at will bless you and encourage you, but will also resonate with where you are in life. Because how many of us are currently in or have been in recently or feel like we're nearing a season of frustration or anger or disappointment 
or dissatisfaction. Probably all of us. And so this collection of poems and, and, and prayers and songs, I, I hope, will become our prayers, our songs, our meditations to God. Okay? So you ready for this? Today we're going to begin in Psalm 1. Many scholars and, and, and commentators will say that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are actually one complete psalm. And somewhere uh, through the history of translation, it was divided into two. But we're only going to look at Psalm 1 as it is in our English Bibles, the first six verses. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn with me. And if not, let's read it together here on the screen. This is the New International Version. Beginning in Psalm 1, verse 1, it says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers, but not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of God. Will you join me once more in a word of prayer? Lord God, as we um, commit this time to you, Lord, would you, uh, would you help us to humble ourselves before your word? Lord, give us patience. Give us humility. Uh, give us uh, an ability to focus and to really pay attention to the truth and the beauty and the wisdom of your word. Father, we all come from places where, uh, Lord, we can get beat up and discouraged. Uh, and so, Lord, we need encouragement and affirmation and life. And so, Lord, may we find those things in your word. Lord, would you encourage us as we walk with you? And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Like I said, the Psalms uh, is really an ancient collection of poems and songs, but the amazing thing is that they speak to our modern issues and problems. They are real people with real issues calling out to God, and we can relate with them because the issues that people faced in ancient times are the same issues that we face today. Our circumstances, the externals of life may have changed quite drastically, but fundamentally, we go through life in the same way. There's a circle, there's a cycle, there's birth, there's life, there's growth, there's death. All of these things exist, and um, these psalmists uh, articulate them so well. But today we look at Psalm 1, and Psalm 1 is really kind of a summary of the entire Psalter, the entire collection of psalms. Psalm 1 is kind of like a window that helps us to see what this entire collection of writings is all about. In a lot of ways, it's sort of the gatekeeper. And as you come into the Psalter and you read the Psalm, Psalm 1, the first Psalm, it prepares you for what to expect. And so the very first word of the very first Psalm is the word blessed. Blessed is the man. Can we look at that? Verse 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now that word blessed, what does that mean? We use that word all the time, especially if you go to church, if you've been in church most of your life. God, bless me, bless my family, my friends. Oh, you're so blessed. 
I want more blessing in my life. What, what does that really mean? Well, in the Hebrew, the word here that's translated blessed could also be translated as full of joy or maybe even quite better, happy. Happy is the man. Even in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he is really saying happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are the meek. Happy are the truth tellers and the peacemakers. And here, in quite the same way, we can say happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. So Psalm 1 is really a psalm about the search for happiness. And this is really important. This is really important because most of us, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, don't know what happiness is. We get really excited. We experience things that are fun and neat and cool. But the reason why I think most of us don't know what it is is because when we think, just when we think we've experienced it and found it, it slips through our fingers. And it's impossible to keep and sustain. Do you know what I'm talking about? People, when I look at them, they just don't seem to be happy. When I first moved to Boston uh, about 12 years ago, I noticed that most of the people that lived here in this area were not happy. They were just grumpy and irritated and frustrated. And I found out very quickly that one of the main reasons for that, among many, was the fact that the hometown team, the Boston Red Sox, had not won a World Series since 1918. Literally generations of people lived in the city and were diehard Red Sox fans. And there were moments when the, when the World Series was in grasp. There were moments when it literally slipped through their fingers or the ball rolled literally in between their legs and they, and they lost the World Series. All the while, their arch rival, the New York Yankees, collecting trophy after trophy, running out of shelf space, while the Boston Red Sox and their fans are in misery for decades. So people were unhappy. They weren't positive. They were skeptical. There was a little bit of promise at the beginning of every season, but they knew eventually the Yankees would come up and squash their hopes. That's really what it was like here in Boston in the late 90s and early 2000s. And then 2004 came. 2004, the Red Sox won the World Series. And then again in 2007. But the truth is, since I've been here over the last 10 years, Boston sports teams have won a total of eight championships. The Patriots, since 2001, have won three Super Bowls. The Red Sox have won two World Series. The Celtics have won an NBA championship. The Boston Bruins have hoisted the Stanley Cup. And just recently, the Boston Cannons, do you know who they are? Major League Lacrosse, the professional Boston lacrosse team, just won the MLL championship. And so that's eight titles in 10 years. It's like almost every single year we have a parade here in Boston. Many people don't ever experience that in their entire life in their home city with their home teams. But it's like every year it's like, okay, we got to plan the parade. It's like every year you just expect it. And even though after 86 years of misery and not winning a championship, you know what? I still find that people here who have been blessed with multiple championships can still grumble and be irritated about something else. Do you know what I'm talking about? And this is just one example. But people always have something that makes them sour. It's like you can be spoiled with sports, but then maybe it's the economy. Maybe it's a relationship 
Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your academics, your career, your marriage, your children, your house, your property, your portfolio, whatever it is, you can put so much stock and weight in it to bring you that happiness that you've always pursued. And oftentimes, literally overnight, it can vanish and we are unhappy. So is that what happiness really is? Is it winning? Is it earning more money? Is it falling in love and getting married and and having children and buying a house and and having a, a nice, comfortable nest egg? Is that happiness? Because what happens when all of those things slip through our fingers? And, and in many, many, many situations, it has. What the psalm is telling us here in Psalm 1 is that despite the experiences that many people have had in life where they have sought after happiness and it's only eluded them, Psalm 1 is saying happiness is real. It's attainable. Because the psalmist says, Blessed is the man. Happy is the man. Not happy can be the man who makes a lot of money. Happy can be the woman who has an a, 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 a awesome career. Happy can be the family who uh, you know, has a, a lot of marital health and satisfaction. No, it says blessed is the man or the woman who, what, who does not walk, who, do, who does not stand, or who does not sit in the seat of mockers. The psalmist is telling us that happiness is real, but that most of us, are seeking after it in the wrong way. If there are four people here in this first verse, the blessed man, but then you've got the one who walks in the counsel of the wicked, stands in the way of sinners, and sits in the seat of mockers, you've got four people, and three out of four of them are not blessed, are not happy. Which means 75% of all the people that you see around are probably not very happy. But what really surprises me is even in the church, even though we know that God is is good and God wants our happiness, I see so many people in the church that are unhappy and unsatisfied. It's just like dragging your feet through life. Like, oh, I go to church. I'm a Christian. I know God is good and he's in control and he loves me. But life sucks. I'm still not getting anything out of life. I still haven't hit the sweet spot. When the psalmist says, blessed is this man, it means that we have sought after it probably in all of the wrong ways. But how does this man find happiness? It says in verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. How does this man find happiness? Well, it says he delights in the law of the Lord. He delights in God. He delights in Jesus. And I know you're thinking, Eugene, I came to church for you to tell me that? Because I already knew that. Every church I've ever been to tells me The secret to happiness and joy is Jesus. There's joy in Jesus. Go find Jesus, you find joy. Trust in God and you'll have happiness. I know that. If we know that, why is it that so few of us are living in it? Why is it that so few of us are living in happiness and joy and have felt like that God actually cares about our situation, about our lives, and has blessed us. Well, let me tell you why. The reason why we know this but don't experience it is because oftentimes when we come to God, what we're looking for is God. Now, what we're looking for is happiness instead of God. We go to God to get happiness. And the truth is, whenever you're looking for happiness, you never find it. 
It's like the person who got married for happiness. That person, in my experience, never has a happy marriage. It's like the person who took that job for happiness. But they take that job and they realize how much anxiety comes along with that job, how cutthroat that industry is, and they realize Monday through Friday, I'm not that happy. I thought I'd be happy if I landed that job. I thought I'd be happy if I got that corner office. But that job came with a lot of other stuff that's making life very unhappy for me right now. It's like that person who thought, if I could just date that person, man, I would be happy. You date that person and you realize, oh my gosh, you're not perfect. You're, not, you're far from it, actually, right? It's like the person seeking happiness never finds it. And the problem is, when we come to church, we come to God, not seeking God, but we come seeking happiness. And that's why a lot of people, when they come to church, will have these emotional experiences, whether it's a Sunday service, a retreat, a mission trip, some kind of prayer service or something, and they'll get really happy and really excited. But then how many days does it take for that to literally disappear? It's impossible to sustain that. Why? Because that which, what, that which you're looking for in God is not to be found in that way. When we come to God, we oftentimes say, God, I will go to church. I will pray. I will serve you. But... And this is where it all changes. But you owe me. You owe me faithfulness. You owe me goodness. You owe me a good life. I should get into all the programs that I apply to. I should be able to have healthy relationships. My family should be healed from all of its issues. And we attach that condition. God, I'll come to you, but you owe me. And somehow or another, we have become a generation that has been spoiled by that empty promise. That if we come to God, he'll give us happiness. But when we come to God, we need to be seeking God himself. This man is blessed because his delight is not in happiness. His delight is not in friendship. His delight is not in money or marriage or children. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. For us, oftentimes, we seek happiness in all the wrong things. My son, uh, Nathan, who is eight years old, he is a Lego genius. He can put any Lego together. He's only eight, but he does the ones that are for like 12 and 15-year-olds. He does it in less than an hour, flat, right? Oftentimes, we'll go to Target or Walmart, and he'll go to the toy section, and he doesn't mess around with the toys. He goes straight to the Legos, and he just like scans them. You know, which one will be my challenger today? He kind of looks for it and kind of scopes it out. My wife and I are like, oh my gosh, we've got like a bucket of Legos at home. We can't buy another one. And so we're like, okay, today we're not going to buy him a Lego. But then he like really gets into one and one of us will kind of weaken up and we'll say, oh, that one looks educational. You know, it'll really help him to, to not watch TV and use his creativity. Maybe he'll be an engineer someday. Okay, let's buy it. You know, it's like that whole engineering thing. Oh, he'll go to MIT if he plays Legos. So we buy the Legos. And what he does, he buys a Lego, he takes it home, he rips the box open, throws it out on the table. Within 30 minutes, it's completed, and it's never touched again. Ever. Ever. Okay? That's the way it goes. So we go back to Target, a new Lego. It's like that happiness was more, it was more exciting, the pursuit of getting the Lego and putting it together. But now that you've experienced it, it's gone. It's disappeared. And so many of us live our lives that way. We buy toys. We, we, we consume ourselves, our time with hobbies, with interests. It's exciting. But eventually it leaves us hanging. It's like buying that new car that you've always wanted. Oh man, I am happy because I have a new car. But what happens when it gets a scratch? Because every car gets scratched. 
what happens when you park it in Boston and you come back to your car and somebody's nicked your bumper because it happens here in Boston? What happens when the miles rack up and it depreciates? Are you still happy? It's like getting the new iPhone 12 whenever that comes out, right? Oh, if I could just get the new iPhone, I'll be happy until iPhone 13 comes out, you know, and then you're not happy anymore, right? You're happy with what you have until you see what other people have and you want what they have and then you're not happy with what you have. We've become spoiled by things like empty promises. We've been spoiled by comfort and convenience. A couple of weeks ago, I was at Logan Airport about to get on a plane from Boston to Charlotte. Two-hour flight. I could read a magazine and I'm there. Boom. Get to the, ter- get to the gate and I find out there's a 45-minute delay. I look around and everybody's livid. They're upset. They're furious. They're flaming. They want free flights. They want vouchers. They're like complaining to the, to the ticket counter. 45-minute delay. See, last time I checked, our generation, we could read a magazine and we'd be in Charlotte in two hours. But most, every other generation in the history of man, it took like 45 days to get from Boston to Charlotte. Right? You can watch two movies from Boston to L.A. and you're there. That took like six months and people died along the way. You know what I mean? It's like we have become spoiled with convenience and comfort. And so therefore, happiness is an illusion. You can never be happy. It's like right now you're not happy. I know why. Because it's humid in here. I get it. It's hot. My shirt is sticking to my back. I'm with you. I'm not happy about this. All right? But guess what? Our generation is blessed because we have this thing called climate control. When I go home, I can push a couple buttons and cold, humidity-free air will blast out these holes in the wall. I don't know where it comes from. It just comes when I push a button and it comforts me. It feels so good. And you're all probably thinking, well, why can't we do that here? I'm unhappy. I came to this church and how come it's got to be all hot and humid? And you're not happy. But you know, most people for the last billion years, going all the way back to Adam and Eve and cavemen and dinosaurs and all of that, jazz, I'm not going to get into that, but all those, you know, none of them could fathom pushing a button to heat up the room or to cool it down. But now I'm unhappy because I'm at church. I got to listen to this guy talk, say things. I already know happiness is in God. I already know that. And it's humid. But the truth is, we come not seeking God. We come seeking happiness and comfort and convenience and all these other things. When I go to church, I want to hear a message that applies to my life. Then I'll be happy. I want a message that's exciting. I want a room that's air-conditioned. I want snacks. I want Krispy Kreme and Starbucks overflowing on the table. That's what we want. And that's not what we get. And oftentimes, and again, I'm being trite here, but come on. We come to God and we say, God, I'll trust you, I'll obey you, but you better hook me up. You better bless my business. You better bring health to my parents, physically, relationally. There's always a condition, but not with this man. This man is happy because his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And then in verse 3, there's this beautiful metaphor here. It says, 
He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Wherever he goes, prospers. Now, this is a metaphor to explain simply what he said in the first two verses. He's saying this happy man is like a tree. Just imagine that for a second. We're all trees, okay? Planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. Did you catch that? Not every season, not every day. To be a Christian doesn't mean that you're happy all the time, right? Like, do you know those people that you go to church and, like, you've just experienced tragedy and they're like, praise the Lord for tragedy. I'm like, what's wrong with you? That's unhealthy and unbiblical, right? It's not saying a a, a happy man that, that trusts in the Lord is yielding fruit in every season. It just says in season, And I also love what this psalm doesn't say. It doesn't say he is like a tree planted in Southern California where every day is 72 degrees with zero humidity, right? It doesn't say that. I'm glad it doesn't say he's like a palm tree in Maui. No, it says he's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, which means sometimes there is no fruit. Sometimes there is no sunshine. Sometimes there's not enough rain. Sometimes there's too much wind or too much rain like we experienced last week. But what we know about this tree is that through these seasons, good and bad, its leaf does not wither. Its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. What is the key to that? Well, it's the delight in the Lord. But what is the metaphor explaining? That to delight in the Lord means to seek your happiness in the sustenance of the river of life. The word of God, Jesus Christ himself, that our happiness be found in him and him alone, which tells us, this is my second point, that happiness is not external and circumstantial, but fundamental, cosmic, and supernatural. It's not something that just falls out of the sky like rain or just shines out of the the sky like sun, but it's digging roots down deep into the ground and drawing from the stream of life. So many of us expect our joy and our happiness to be circumstantial. Let me talk about weddings again. It's like that person who gets invited to their first wedding. I'm not talking about like a relative or a cousin or somebody where you just have to go because you're related. I'm talking about a friend, maybe an older friend or older brother or sister or somebody you know, and they're having a party and they invite you to their wedding. It's like the first one. I know my first one I went, it was a Chinese wedding, Chinese banquet. I was so excited. I got invited to this thing. I, I picked out a nice tie, found a suit that I could wear. I went. It was so much fun right? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You go to the wedding and it's beautiful. It's in this chapel and, and the sermon, the homily is sweet and the couple is so in love and then everybody busses over to this hotel or this party hall and we have drinks and food and dancing and cake and movies and slideshows and it's so much fun. It's like six hours long. It doesn't end and the bar is always open. I mean, it's so fun and so exciting. We can't wait to go to another one. But then what happens when you get invited to your 10th wedding and your 20th wedding and your 50th wedding? I've heard people say things like this. Oh, another wedding. I got to buy another gift. I got to buy a new dress. I got to travel. It's going to cost me time and money. I've heard some people say, I'm sick of weddings. When is my wedding going to come? 
right? They've gone to 25 weddings and they've seen 25 of their friends get married and they're still single. What happens is nothing's changed. There's still love. There's still weddings, people getting married. But situationally, circumstantially, I haven't experienced that yet. And so I'm no longer happy. It's like children. It's like the first time a friend of a close friend of yours has a child. You're like, oh, let me be the godfather. Let me be the godparent. Let me be the uncle. You know, I'll buy toys and and shirts and gifts. And then what happens 12, 15, 20 kids later, and you're married, and you're trying to have kids, and you can't? Why does everybody have to have a kid? Why is everybody having kids? Why can't we have a kid? And so what was such a joyful experience, now circumstantially, has become painful and a very resentful experience. And oftentimes I've found that very successful people are not always the happy people, they're the very cynical people. A few years ago, uh, one of my idols, Michael Jordan, was inducted into the Hall of Fame. And uh, he could do no wrong in my eyes, except when I heard his speech, I was very uncomfortable with it. Here's a guy who is God's gift to basketball, best basketball player who ever lived to this day. One day my son will surpass all of his achievements. But uh, for now, Michael Jordan has that seat on the throne, and uh, he gets up there, and for like 45 minutes, what does he do? Does he say, you know, thank you? I love the game of basketball. It's given me so much. No, he doesn't say any of that. He just goes person by person, game by game, team by team, and he criticizes. And he's like, see, I told you I could win. I told you I could be the best. You cut me. You didn't trust in me. You didn't believe in me. And he goes... And he talks about all the people, and a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, that's why he's such a competitor, always competing, even after the game, competing. And I'm hearing it, and I'm like, he's not happy. This entire career, his entire life, everything he's earned and achieved, he's been simply out to prove people wrong. He's cynical and skeptical. And so I wonder sometimes, gosh, he has so much. Would I trade my life with his? Now, if I'm superficial, I'd be like, I have to think about that. I mean, gosh, he has so much. But if I'm honest and real, if he doesn't have God, do I really want everything else he has? Do I? Because his life, again, in my humble opinion, he's been driven by one thing and one thing only, to prove people wrong. And we look at it as happiness and joy and victory. But is that really what it is? Is that really what it all, you know, lined up to be? And we do the same thing. Maybe we won't win an NBA championship. Maybe we'll never be an MVP. But what is it for us? It's getting married. It's having a kid. It's buying a house, buying a car, getting that job, getting into that school, getting into that program or into that club or into that group or getting that girl. And we put the weight of our happiness on these things. The Bible doesn't say, blessed is the man who seeks happiness. No, he says, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. So maybe, just maybe, the reason why you've been going to church all these years and you're tired of the preacher telling you that happiness and joy is in Jesus, the reason why it's eluded you is because you haven't really been seeking Jesus. You've been seeking happiness. I got to go to an exciting church that'll tell me that in a different, fresh way so I can get excited about it again. But two weeks later, three weeks later, a month later, I'm just in the same place. When you come to God, when you come to church, when you come to Jesus to get God, to get Jesus, guess what? You get happiness too. 
yeah, it's not like you'll be having fruit every season. It's not like everything you touch turns to gold because that's not reality. We live in a broken, fallen world. But what it does mean is this. Even when those storms come, your reaction is not, God, where were you when I needed you? I, 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 thought, you, I thought you loved me. I thought I, I, I trusted you. No, the reaction instead is, God, I still trust you. This is hard. This sucks. Let's read the Psalms. You're going to see some very vulgar language, people cursing at God. It's real. They're going to say, God, but you know what you find in the Psalms? Every time you find a movement, a transformation from death to life, from darkness to light, from worry to worship, from doubt to certainty, from pain to healing. You read the Psalms and you find these people in these negative places, in these negative situations who trust in the Lord and meditate on his law day and night and God transforms them, not overnight, but in season. And their leaf does not wither. So give up on instant gratification. Because if it feels instant, then it's probably not real. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways. And he then will make your path straight. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. So my first point, in case I was unclear, joy is real. Happiness is real and attainable, but we go about it the wrong way. Two, joy is found in God and God alone. It's fundamental. It's not circumstantial or external. And my final point is this. Happiness is a choice. It's a decision. Let me illustrate by telling you a famous story found in the Gospel of Luke chapter 15. A story about a man who had two sons, an older one and a younger one. And basically, they had everything they could ever want or ask for. This was a very wealthy man. He was a very powerful and influential man, and therefore his children had everything they could ask for. But the younger child in this story becomes bored. Okay? Like, think about it for a second. I mean, how many of us are like this younger son? We have everything. Now, maybe you don't have everything that that person has, but you have everything you need. I mean, you're here. I mean, you can, go, you can go out and eat after church, right? You've got nice clothes that you're wearing right now. You can come to church without being persecuted. I mean, I could go on and on. We have so much, and yet we are bored, just like this younger brother. He was bored. He had everything. Didn't even have to work for it. His dad just gave birth to him, and he had it, Okay? He gets bored. So he goes to his dad. He says, Dad, I'm bored. I'm not having any fun. This is my translation, by the way. I'm not having any fun, so can you give me my share, my portion, so I can go out and find it? So father says, okay, here you go. So the kid goes out, and he spends all of his money in pursuit of happiness. He chases everything that his physical, his sort of social, his emotional desires kind of draw him to and eventually he runs out of money he runs out of friends he runs out of food basically he runs out of happiness he hits rock bottom and then he comes to his senses he realizes you know what even the servants that work for my father have so much more than what i have here in this pigsty So he realizes, you know, I'm going to swallow my pride. I'm going to go home. I'm going to work for my dad as a servant. So he goes home, and he tells his father, let me work for you. Let me work for you. Let me serve you. He doesn't say, Dad, 
Can I get my room back? He doesn't say, Dad, can I sit at my seat at the table tonight? I'm back. You don't miss me? You know, he doesn't say, can I get my old job back? You know, just managing stuff and like going on vacation for most of the time. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, can I get back my stuff? He says, Dad, can I serve you? Can I work for you? And what does the father do? Does the father cock back his head and smack him upside the head and say, I told you so? Does the father say, you don't belong in my house? No, the father immediately embraces him, puts a ring on his finger, puts a robe around his back, and tells his attendants, let's throw a party because my son has returned home. In other words, the moment the son came to the father to say, everything I have is what you've given, and so I owe everything to you, the father gave him everything that he needed. You see, the moment we go to God and say, God, all I have is a gift, everything. My life is a gift. All of the good, happy parts, and even some of the parts that are not so happy. But it's all a gift. It's all a privilege. And when we, when we re- respond with that kind of humility and go to God and say, it's all a gift, so therefore, take my life and let it be an offering to you, guess what you get in return? You get blessing. You get the embrace. You get the ring and the robe and the party. And don't get me wrong here. This is not an empty promise. I'm not doing a bait and switch where if you do that right now, your life will just be sweet. Remember, we live in a real world. We bear fruit in some seasons, but we don't in others. And that's the reality of our Christian lives. To be honest with you, I have been disappointed and upset and frustrated a lot since I started to follow Jesus. But what I've learned is my true joy comes in trusting God, depending on his streams of water of life. It's a choice. It's not, God, I'll serve you, but, 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 you better help me get these things. You better give me a good life. It's no. Everything I have is yours, and so I offer it to you. God made that choice. He said, I know you'll betray me. I know you'll sin. I'm going to love you, but I know you're just going to stumble. You're going to trample it under your feet. I'm going to love you anyway. There's no condition there. God didn't say, I'll love you if you obey. God didn't say, I'll love you if you do all kinds of wonderful things in my name. No, God said... I love you. I'll die for you. It wasn't conditional. And therefore, our response to him should be likewise. And then and only then will we experience deep joy. Yeah, you're still going to have those relationships in your life that bother the heck out of you. You're still never going to have enough money to get everything you want. You're still uh, not going to be six foot six and slam dunk a basketball like Michael Jordan. You're still not going to have the best family situation or the best job. You're still not going to have all those things. But those aren't the things that matter the most. What matters most is you have God. And therefore, everything else is a gift. Let's pray together. Father, as we've come to the table to remember all that you have done for us, we thank you for your amazing grace your unconditional love. 
Father, we confess that oftentimes we look for happiness in everything but you. And it is a lesson that is so hard for us to learn, and we continue to learn it the hard way. But Lord, we have been reminded today that your grace is sufficient, and that you call us by name to come back to you and to receive you and to have more of you. And so, Father, be with those today that have been distant from you, who have felt estranged from you, God. Lord, would you gently and compassionately call them back. Lord, be with those who are delighting in you but are still struggling to maintain that faithfulness or to embrace that truth. God, encourage them, affirm them, bless them. And then, Lord God, be with those who have yet to believe in you and trust in you. Lord, would you move in their lives in such a way as to reveal more and more of yourself, your existence. And so, Father, may our response to you today be to worship, to be giving you all that we have because it was all given from you, by you, to us to begin with. So we give you praise, we give you thanks, we give you honor and worship. In Jesus' name, amen.